Yep. Didn't even have to borrow one of my dad's condoms to make my first <laughs> sale. Hello and welcome to The Fizzle Show, where we talk about the nuts and bolts of building an audience online and a business. Your hosts are, and, and, and this one was written by Kendon Shaw in his iTunes review. Your hosts are Corbett Barr. If we were a famous UK trio, he'd be Stephen Merchant, experienced, sensibly funny, working to keep things on track. Caleb Wojcik, he'd be Carl Pilkington, master of the well-timed knowledge bomb, bald. And me, Chase Reeves, I'd be Ricky Gervais, no surprise there, irreverent, insightful, keeper of the contagious giggles. Aww, thanks, Kendon, for writing that. It's the second show of 2014, and this whole month of January, we're thinking through uh, how to make our first product. By the end of this, I want you to have a roadmap, insights, an idea, and no more excuses. So what we did was this. We called up some of our most successful friends, people supporting themselves and their families doing stuff that they care about, building things that they're proud of, and we asked them about their first product stories. So you can hear how we all started with a crappy first draft. And this is the second episode in that series. So make sure you check out the first if you haven't. In this episode, you'll hear four stories in the first half of the show. And then in the second half, we're going to walk you through a common mistake or roadblock. In this episode, we talk about pricing. What should you charge? How should you charge for it? What resources should you be aware of? It's a great show. I'll be back after this conversation to fill in any gaps, so let's get into it. Here's Chris Johnson of Simplifilm.com, the best salesman I know, and I like in this uh, when he talks about building a product based around things that you're already hearing from your current clientele. What, tell me, tell me about, like, because you've done a lot of service stuff, you know, Uh, so tell me about when you made your first actual product. Tell me just about what that was like. I mean, the making of the thing itself sure. ends up being really harrowing, you know? Well, so, so the, the thing that, the thing that um, it's not right yet, it's still, it's still, I think, is a disaster, okay? But it's got, you know, 5,000 customers plus another 3,000 free customers. So there's 8,000 people that have on purpose downloaded it and interacted with it. And we've made, you know, $500,000 in gross revenue. Um, so, so, like, it's, and I still think it's a disaster, you know, so it, it's not good enough for me or my customers yet, but then again, it is. So it's never going to get good enough. And if I'd have waited till we'd have perfected the cart, you know, we launched a year ago. If I'd have waited till we'd perfected the cart like I wanted it to be done, it would still never be done. Mm. So just getting it, getting it released and then getting the money to see if the market likes it or not is good. And people are finding value there. You know, there's, there's 200 plus, um, uh, motion graphics objects that they can use to gussy up their screen flows and their and their uh, Camtasia presentations and their keynote stuff. So it, you know it's working out. Yeah, interesting. So for you guys being a mostly service based business before that, mm-hmm. um, working with customers individually and things like that, uh, what was the thinking behind making the product? So we so since we so if you're it's sort of like a theme for a video is kind of what we wanted. We wanted to be able to, you know, we have a lot of people that say, Hey, can we get your work? We love your work. Can we get it for 2,500 bucks? And we wanted to start building a path to be able to say yes to that question. And the first thing was a library of graphics that was beautiful. That was coherent. That was congruent um, to, to, to make that work. That was kind of step. That was one step on the path. So we could be able to say yes or have a soft landing for people. 
and, and as fans of ScreenFlow, and, and as you know, I'm not like a motion graphics guy. I you know I dab, I'm a dabbler. Um, and, you know, I wanted something so I could be able to express myself really fast and still have it look decent. So that was why we built uh, the product we built. That's interesting. So like it's almost like so it sounds like the idea for the product itself was baked into a lot of things that you've heard from people in your audience saying, "Hey, I would love to be able to get one of your movies, but I can't afford the $10,000 price tag." Yeah, and it's it. not even worth it for it's not even worth it for most customers. I mean, if you've got a website business or if you're, you know, selling a World of Warcraft cheat sheet or something, it's not worth it to make a video of that. That's there's not going to be an ROI there. You don't yeah. have the scale and you don't need the branding. So so you just but but they, but you got to have something that looks better than MS Paint or yeah. you know whatever. So so that was where we built. Um, you know we, we thought about making keynote themes, but what we wound up with is working with ScreenFlow because they were great to work with. So given given what you, how long has Flotility been out? Uh, a year and a half. So given uh, we've been you've been going at this for a year and a half, all the things that you've learned, what do you wish? Actually, you- it, it launched on Black Friday of last year. So okay. Whatever. So what yeah. do you what do you wish you would have known? Uh, if you could go back and drop one piece of knowledge in your in your past self, oh boy, um, you know you need a checklist for everything. From something as simple as sending out an email, you need like a final checklist because we said we had a webinar and we had three different dates in the email. Stuff like that, you know, there's there's easy to make mistakes, and and, and when you're launching, you want to get as much work done as possible so that the launch is a smooth, controlled, relaxed process. That's just something to do. You, know, you hear all these little entrepreneurs in launch mode, and what that basically means is that they didn't plan a month early to do something so they could actually respond to things and be optimistic as opposed to being in triage all the time. Yeah, got it. So you're saying have a, have a, have a cheat sheet, have a checklist of all the yeah, things so, that you want. Plan, so plan ahead a couple months yeah. in advance. Yeah, plan, plan ahead. If you know you're launching a product on October 15th, rather than finishing the product, Maybe you maybe it would help you finish the product if you sent that first email, the email that you want to send sharing the product that you're proud of. If you wrote that before the product is all the way finished, that's a set of promises that you're making um, and, and, and that gets one thing out of your hair. You know, and it's, it's easy and it's kind of pleasurable to say, hey, I'm excited to share this with you. And so you're, you're, you know, if you're your future self and you're going to launch on October 15th, on August 15th, you, write, you get into your MailChimp or your AWeber and you actually schedule it to go to your list with the stuff that you're sharing. Yeah. Write the blog post. Don't publish it, but write it. And then and then back out of there so you can um, you know, work back to forwards. I like that. So yeah, working backwards from the launch. All right, Chris, mm-hmm. well, man, thanks so much. Where can people find out, find more about you? Uh, boy, that's a good question right now. Uh, gen- GenuineChris.com is a good place. Simplifilm.com is a good place. Either one of those will get me. All right. Thanks, man. Cheers. Here's Paul Jarvis of PJRVS.com, writer of books, designer of websites. Uh, I like when he gets into the, even though he's a vegan, the meat matters bits. Quick note here, he gets a bit cussy, and I didn't edit it out because this is his language and how he thinks about his business. I wanted to keep that intact. So, uh, you know, earmuffs, kids. What was it like for you to make your first product? Scary. I mean, I've made a bunch of stuff like uh, to make my first successful product or to make my first product that failed, which was probably like the first four or five. Well, let's talk about let's <laughs> talk about both. I mean, I'm thinking specifically of the people who are like, I think I'm ready to do this. I want to try it. But what should I expect? You know? Yeah. So for the I guess my first successful other than like cause web, I, I'm kind of like you, right? Like web design is always something that's there. And that's typically how I make all my money. But yeah. then writing is 
vastly overtaking that. Mm-hmm. So my first book, I guess, was probably my first like successful product. And that I didn't, I kind of went into it not thinking that. I was like, fuck, dude, I can sell like 10 copies of this and I'm yeah. going to be the coolest person ever. And then I sold like 5,000 copies. Yeah. So I think the the way that I approached that was really just, and the way that I approach everything is, let's see if this works. Let's experiment. Let's try things. Let's not attach anything to the outcome. Let's not think in the future. Let's be present. Mm-hmm. And when you're present, you're less focused on like fear and anxiety and all that bullshit. Mm-hmm. You actually just like you actually have to do the fucking work. Mm-hmm. If you're in the moment, it's like you're either doing the work or you're not doing the work. So for the first book, I was really focused on let's just get this done. Like let's get this done. And then mm-hmm. I'll worry about launching it when I'm launching it. I'll worry about promoting it when I'm promoting it. I'll worry about this when I come to it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So um, it's almost like you committed to just doing the work and decided not to think about the outcome and results and stuff like that. Yeah. And that obviously leads to some epic failures too, because it's, <laughs> yeah, you're not really figuring out a game plan. But for me, especially for things where it's like it can fail and I'm not ruined. And my family doesn't have to like go live in the street where yeah. it's just like, I really want to do this. I like doing it. And I really want to push to see if I can get this, if I can like level this up and do this as a pro kind of thing. And then it's like, fuck, let's experiment. Cause like, what do you have to lose other than you've got your other thing that you can kind of fall back on for me, obviously web design, but yeah. it's just like, I might as well, I have nothing to lose. I might as well give this a try. Hmm, that's, so if you could go back to uh, young Paul Jarvis uh, at making that first thing, you know, you said the first few were failures. Mm-hmm. What would you have told to that Paul Jarvis? Would it be something about how to make that project more successful or something else? Um, it probably would have been to take more risks and to get it out quicker. The hmm. first two, because I had two startups uh, like in the early 2000s, And we spent so much time on fucking developing it and perfecting it that by the time one of them, by the time we launched, I think it was like September, whenever the fucking economy crashed, right? Mm -hmm. And if we had launched that a year earlier when we pretty much had a beta done, Mm. it probably would have done a lot better. But we, and I mean, obviously we can't, couldn't predict the economic climate just going to shit. Good use but, of the word economic climate, by the way. You you win the uh, brilliant. You win the uh, you can't see it, but there's a bunch of clowns and and midgets running around back here hey, saying yeah. Yeah, so that's the word of the day. Good work. Nice. No, but keep going. You couldn't predict the economic climate. No, but we could have. And same with the the other uh, startup that I that I was part of. We kind of <clears throat> we spent too much time perfecting and not enough time launching. And that's really we could have got it out sooner with less features and it's like the whole fucking lean startup model right it's like get something out there as fast as you can the minimum viable product pivot if you need to based on your paying customers and what they want or don't want because you can only assume so many things before you're just like pulling ideas and features and functions out of your ass and hoping it's what your audience wants Mm -hmm. so if we had done that launched quicker with less stuff and got it out there then we then those companies could still be going Interesting. Okay, that's good. I like that. So, so given uh, your experience making these products and, and and having doing so much, you know, client services work, ha- yeah. hearing so much from from them through those processes, learn, learning so much, then making a handful of of these products yourself, um, 
What, and this is my last question, what are the things that you have learned are unimportant in the process and maybe one or two that you think are just super important? Sure. I think almost everything is uh, like almost everything with, I mean, I get into this, all my clients get into this. It's like if the button is on the left or on the right, yeah. who fucking cares? If yeah. it's blue or green, who fucking cares? And I mean, I'm a web designer. So a lot of times my clients are like, really? Yeah. Or people that are reading my writing are like, really? You really think that that's unimportant? Mm-hmm. But I think that the main, so all, all this ephemera shit like if you have your social media account or the right domain name that matches your trip fuck who gives a shit yeah like it's just it's silly and i mean when it's mine i get caught up in the same shit and it's easy for me to look at other people like clients and be like why are you focusing on that minutiae that doesn't matter and then it's mine it's like this is my baby this has to be fucking right yeah totally so but i i think the things that do matter is the actual work like if it's a book the marketing is important, but it's not as important as the content of the book. Hmm. Like the how you tweet about the launch or how you write your Kickstarter campaign for the book or how you promote it or which category you put it on on Amazon, that's all secondary to the book. Like write the fucking book. Or if it's a product, it's what the product actually does. Like how it's marketed, how you communicate, how you reach that audience, kind of important, not as important as the actual product. So people thought, and it sounds stupid coming from a vegan, but it's like <laughs> the meat matters. Yeah. Like the, the main thing that it is that you are going to put out into the world is what matters and all the other stuff around it, like the, the marketing, the design, the promotion, all of that. Important, yes. Secondary, though. Hmm, I like that. Now, here's here, actually, I want to go one, one more with you. Um, sure. What's interesting is you've got the opportunity to look at, uh, at this stuff from the perspective of someone who's launched a handful of things rather than someone who's just launched one thing. And I have this, these, this thought on, on, uh, based on these, this quote from uh, Brad Feld about the hardest thing for a 22-year-old entrepreneur to, to do is look at the next 22 years and plan <laughs> accordingly, but that's what you have to do. You have to look at it in a long-term view and take it in many short cycles. Um, mm-hmm. And in some ways, you, your thoughts about the button doesn't matter if it's on the left or on the right. It doesn't matter if it's green or if it's blue. Things like this, all of these conversion optimization things versus being the person who writes for this kind of person year after year after year after year after year and growing that audience so that in five years you're selling into a, a you know an already prepped audience versus just sending out another thing into the ether. Um, I can Im- I got to imagine that that you've ex- have you experienced that uh, in the products that you've made, sort of growing your audience alongside. Definitely, and I kind of see it from both sides, right? Like I see it because I've worked, I've done web design for twenty years, mm-hmm. like, and I've kind of approached that business with the long term in mind. I don't care about like short wins and stuff like that. So I kind of approach my writing in the same way. And I get to see my clients do that. And some of my clients are like massive entrepreneurs, right? So I get to see it on like a, a scale way bigger than than my audience is. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's, it's really interesting. But yeah, I do kind of I do kind of take more the the long game approach to things. And it kind of like I don't need to have a modal window that interrupts my a reader reading my website to try to get them on the mailing list. Mm. I'd rather build my mailing list a bit slower, mm-hmm. but not annoy people. And I know that the type of people that I want to read my stuff are the type of people that would say, fuck you, Paul Jarvis, I'm closing your site because you have a modal window. Yeah. So I kind of like to take the more, and but it's hard, right? Like it's, it's almost, um, 
addictive because when you have a, like enough of a following on social media, it's like, fuck, I, if I tweet about my book once, then I sell 20 copies. So if I tweet about my book 20 times, then I'm going to sell, I'm not good at math number. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. It's, it's like, it's hard to kind of rein that in a bit, but I also like, I don't want to, I would rather connect and communicate with people than just like marketing vomit on their on their feeds kind of thing. Yeah. So I try to kind of temper that. And it's I like I see it pay off in the long run. Like I don't have the massive first day sales of books, but then like it still it, it adds up of thousands a year over multiple years. Like for my first book, I've sold probably as many copies this year, which is year three, as I did in year one. Mm. Just because I've kind of taken like the long approach, and I, I write, I didn't like blow my load on writing five thousand guest posts that first day. Yeah, I just keep kind of doing like one or two a month, and just kind of getting it out there that way. Yeah, I like that. Now, final question. I, I this is like my fourth final question. <laughs> bonus um, round. Bonus round. Yeah. Uh, so for someone, for the people out there who are who have like a regular job or are doing client services, maybe they are web designers or or freelancers, copywriters, all sorts of things, right? But then mm-hmm. they're building their product on the side. Any tips for them? Yeah, it's all about uh, prioritizing, right? Like when I was writing my book, I didn't want my web design, uh, the money that I make doing web design to fund my writing or else that would be a hobby. And I already have a hobby of playing music and I have a lot of expensive instruments. Yeah. So I wanted my writing to kind of stand on its own. So the first book that I did, I did really small and I didn't spend any money on it. And then as that sold, I spent money on the next one. But coming back to the prioritization thing, like I haven't had a TV in 10 years. Because I, I'd rather be making stuff than consuming stuff. Yeah. So it, and it, as well, I say no to almost everything. Like I don't, I don't know why I didn't say no to this call first. But like <laughs> I say no to projects, kind of to start. Like my default to anything is no because my time. I, I really like to focus on the things that I'm working on. And people take on too much. We all think that we can, we're fucking gods or goddesses and we can get everything in the universe done all in like the next five minutes. Mm-hmm. And we can't. And the more that you say no to things that you probably don't even fucking want to do anyways, the more time and space you have to do the things you actually want to do. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Paul Jarvis, for your time and your cool. mind-blowing revelations. Woo! Here's Jason Glaspie, founder of paleoplan.com and one of my favorite bathrobe CEOs. One of my favorite points here is when he talks about solving a problem that's actually exciting for you to solve. What was it like to build your your first product? Um, my very first or the one that actually worked out? <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, let's go with, well, you can, you can talk about both if you'd like. Sure. Um, my very, very first project uh, product was called unthirsty.com. It was a happy hour finder. Me and a buddy didn't really know any better, and we were trying to keep track of happy hours. We were doing web stuff, and so we just started finding out everything we could. Google Maps API was brand new, so we thought, wow, this is cool. We can put our content onto this Google Map. Yeah. And uh, a bunch of our friends found out about it and like started contributing and the site kind of started growing and I got Lifehacker to cover it. And this is back like in the early days of Lifehacker, even where, you know, you could write in and get an email response. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it kind of grew and it, it got popular and it got to be known really well, like as like it was the number one search result for happy hours uh, nationwide and, and blah, blah, blah. And 
Uh, it never really made any money. We sold it for, you know, like a nice vacation, but not for, you know, uh, retirement money. Yeah. But with it, we didn't have any idea what to expect. We were just like, our job was kind of boring. We weren't being that challenged. We saw all this cool stuff happening online and we're like, well, let's try something, you know? And, um, we didn't want to do a shitty job. So we, we've got a friend who is a really good illustrator to, and we used his amazing illustrations that he had of these cocktail car- cartoons, like mm-hmm. little little olive with a toothpick through them. Um, and it had a good brand. And we actually, I mean, we, we spent no money on anything. I think we bought the cartoonist a couple bottles of whiskey as a thank you for letting us license his stuff. And, yeah. Um, and what we were doing was cool, so people liked what we were doing, and they were excited about it. <clears throat> now... It had no business model. It never made any money. Um, it was a ton of work, but we were proud of it, and it opened up a ton of doors for us. Yeah. And now when I look back, it's like, wow, that was an amazingly fortuitous opportunity to, to build something that actually wasn't making money, but we were still passionate about. And just the amount of doors it opened up. And at the time, doing something online was still pretty new. Now everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. Everyone thinks they're part of a startup. So you get you kind of people roll their eyes at you when you tell them that's what you're doing. Yeah. <clears throat> Back then, it was like, wow, you made something on this internet. That's kind of neat. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't for a client. So it sounded like you were doing that. I mean, that you, you had so much momentum just because it was fun. And it was like you and your buddy and a handful of friends that, that, that had told you, like, we like this. We're going to contribute to it. So it just felt cool. It like, felt like something like you just wanted to do it. And you just say, screw it. I'm going to do it. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. We, we, had ho- we had hopes that it would turn into something. Mm. And it did. It just, we had no idea what it would be. And we never saw that it would just open doors, but those doors would be great doors to have open for us. Yeah. So tell me about the the other one that you mentioned then, the one that, that finally worked out. Yeah. So I created a site called Paleo Plan. Um, it was actually just over four years ago. Uh, we launched the day before Thanksgiving in 2009. And that was focused on, um, I've been going to a CrossFit and had learned about eating the paleo diet yeah. and just recognized it was a huge pain about to try and do. And, um, <clears throat> there, at the time there were very few resources available online that could really help. There were some recipes and there was some information, but nothing that really took the pain out of doing it yourself for the first time. Mm. And now there's a ton of amazing resources all over, but yeah. uh, four years ago it was a pretty sparse environment. And I just kind of had this realization, you know, like, hey, I, I make websites and I am looking for this service that'll help me make eating paleo easier. easier. Yeah. So why don't I make that service and sell it? And I asked a few people, I got kind of an idea what to do, um, and I just started going. And I remember I was sitting there the day after Thanksgiving hitting refresh on my uh, page. And then when I saw, like, you know, someone paid nine ninety nine. And they were going to pay again in a month um, if they didn't cancel. And my mind was just blown. Someone I'd never met had found my website, purchased something, and I was almost $10 richer. <laughs> yeah, totally. It, but it took, it took uh, almost a year and a half before it was generating enough income I could quit my job. And it wasn't until about two years until it had actually replaced my previous job's income. Hmm. I think a lot of people think like, oh, you just build this and you know, like, 
by next month, you know, we'll probably be in the Bahamas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, versus like, no, you're probably gonna have to work on this at night and weekends for a, a while before that other job thing goes away. Mm. So what, so if you could go back to, if you could, you know, send a message back to Jason Glassby, either on, on Thirsty or on, on Paleo Plan or, or both, um, when he's just getting started, what do you think you would tell him? Do something that is going to excite you because, um, and it doesn't have to be content that excites you. you solve a problem that is exciting to solve. Mm. And sometimes that's giving a specific piece of content to a specific person. Yeah. Sometimes that's working with a certain type of person, regardless of what that work is. Yeah. You know, or maybe it's just, wow, figuring out how to do X, Y, and Z on the internet is just thrilling to me. And I don't even care what content it is. I just, but I'm, I'm excited to learn more mm. um, because it's going to take a while before you're really getting paid. And if you're not enjoying it, um, those hours are going to be miserable. Yeah. You might as well just have a job. Yeah. Uh, so, and then obviously, you know, the closer you are to something that you're interested in from a content perspective as well, it's going to be a lot easier. So those are two things. And for me, that was really easy because I was trying to eat paleo at the time. So I was learning all about it anyway. And as previous to that, I I loved happy hours is the only way I could afford to drink. So I was (laughs) way into finding deals. It was the only way I could afford to drink and I sure as hell wasn't going to stay sober. So (laughs) (laughs) that's not enough. (laughs) I like it. So looking back, like, you know, there's so many things that we end up like, you know, worrying about and, and thinking about and fretting over and staying up at night to, to figure out things that we think are important, but they end up being unimportant. Do you do any of those? Can you think of a few of those that you kind of experienced through launching or, or, or sustaining either of these products? Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the little lessons that I learned really on that I, or I'm sorry, that I was reluctant to learn hmm. is once Paleo Plan started making a little bit of money, um, I saw it as income, <clears throat> and I was really reluctant to hire anyone to help out with anything. And I thought, you know, if I hire someone to help with this one element, that's just money I'm not making, and I'm capable of doing it, and I have the time to do it. So not doing it is me being lazy, yeah. and I'm not bringing money into the family that my family could be saving. And so I felt really guilty about hiring help. But it got to a point where I was just like, you know, I'm doing so much work and my mind is fried. And so I I brought someone on and immediately I just had this amazing uh, flush of new energy and vision for the company. And um, I started seeing all these different opportunities to grow the company that while I was stuck in just preserving the the company's ability to work, I wasn't growing it. And so the more people I hired to help, the bigger and better the site became. And I always joked that Paleo Plan could not have been as good as it is now if it was up if I wasn't so lazy. Mm. Um, because once I've realized that wow, when I hire someone who's really good at this, they're more efficient at it. They get it done quicker and they get it done better. Yeah. And I happen to be really, I think my strength lies in having a vision and an understanding of the product and understanding of the message, but I'm a terrible designer. I'm, I don't like writing my own content because it's, it, I, I think too hard on it, right? I could write you a headline in two minutes, but I would take three hours to write my own headline. Yeah. 
um, doing customer support. I thought I was the only person that could do it. But then I brought on someone who was actually more empathetic, had more charm, and was just a sweeter person in general to crush it. And not doing customer service for three hours a day freed me up to have those three hours to think about how can we grow the company and expand in new ways. And so all along, I've found people who are passionate and excellent at doing tasks, and they've taken over those for me and has made me a better manager of the company and owner of the site. It's made me more profitable, even though I'm paying out a lot more. Mm. And um, the site is by far better for it. The more I take myself out of ev- trying to do everything, the better it gets. So that was something I didn't learn until Paleo Plan, and it wasn't until probably about six months in that I finally got over the guilt of feeling I should do it all. And it meant I didn't make as much for a little while. I was paying someone else to help with things. Yeah. But the site grew so much faster, I know for a fact it never would have gotten to the point it is now had I tried to do everything myself. And for either guilt reasons or selfish money reasons or whatever. Like I have, I have so much more to offer my family as well because I'm not super, super stressed out. Um, so that's something that I will never forget. Um, every business I, I start from now on, I will be anxious to find excellent people to take over tasks that um, I don't need to do and allow me to focus on building something big that allows people to work on it. And that, that's my strength, and I know that now. No, oh, I like that. Well, Jason Glassby of paleoplan.com. Thanks so much, .com. man. I really appreciate it. .biz.info.org. <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure, Chase. And finally, here's Jenny Blake, founder of lifeaftercollege.org and author of the book by the same name. I really like the part she got into when she talks about how she was scared people would say it was no good. A pile of cliches and and how she processed that afterwards. What was the very first product that you ever made? The very first product, well, I have to say my book. Your book. And it took two and a half years. I was terrified. I'd never sold a damn thing on my website and I had had it for my website for about four or five years. Yeah. And so my very first product really, really didn't go for agile on that one was the book that, you know, $12 through a traditional publisher running press. Mm. And that came out in March of 2011. And you said it, it was, it was terrifying. Like what was that process like making the thing? Oh my gosh. I mean, talk about a high stakes pressure filled situation here. I had been working on this thing. I had hit dip after dip and roller coaster after roller coaster wanted to give up on it many times. And then finally it was set to launch and I was just so nervous. I had never asked anyone to buy anything from me. And even though this is a book, it's not even a a high cost product. I was scared and I was really afraid that they would laugh me out of the internet because it was no good and a pile of cliches. And the funny thing is that some one-star reviewers have said as much, but it didn't kill me. I'm still here today. So, okay, that's it. that's really interesting. <laughs> so the, the nervousness was about being sort of afraid to ask someone to buy something. And you said, so were you saying that you thought people would think it's no good and that it was a pile of cliches and stuff like that? <laughs> yeah, I just had all these fears. As soon as money is being exchanged, I felt more pressure. It was different than me just writing and having people like my content. And 
I'm going to cheat a little bit because the other big product that I launched was my Make Should Happen course yeah. later that year. And it was interesting because I quit school after my book came out. I quit in June. Mm-hmm. And Make Should Happen, I launched in September. There again, I was terrified. This was a higher price point. It was two ninety seven. And at that point, my fear was, well, if this doesn't succeed, all my hopes and dreams as an entrepreneur are crushed and tail between my legs, I'm not cut out for online business. Mm. So again, you know, pressure that I had put on myself. <laughs> yeah. Looking back on those fears and that experience of yeah. making the book and stuff, what do you wish you could have told your, what do you wish you could implant in Jenny Blake back then's mind? I would say, first, it just doesn't help to put so much pressure on a situation and these things, it's a learning experience no matter what. And that's one of the very interesting things about being in business for yourself or even anyone who's running a blog as a side hustle, that every aspect of it will, in fact, call up your biggest fears and ask you to confront those things, whether it's perfectionism or sharing your work publicly. And so to really uh, take some of the pressure off to know that just by doing it, just by being brave to put something out there to the world is a success, as Seth Godin would say. And I would also just tell myself that it's all good. But the things that I spent time worrying about were just not a problem. And then even if they are, I find that we are much more resilient in the moment than we imagine ourselves to be when we're projecting those fears far out into the future. Hmm. I like that. I love, I love, I love any time I get to hear the word resilient in a conversation. Yes. Well, I'm interested by it at the moment because there's a book called Anti-Fragile where uh-huh. he says the opposite of fragile is not resilient, which is just staying alive through a tough time, but that an anti-fragile entity like human beings actually gets stronger because of challenge and adversity. Mm. So we are beyond resilient. We are anti-fragile. And that's kind of cool, too, that all your mistakes actually make you stronger and better. And I think intuitively we all know that. But yeah. No, that's that's great. Well, this is awesome. This is super helpful. Um, So, Jenny Blake, thank you for taking the time. You're so welcome. Thanks for calling and everyone for listening. Uh, okay, first things first. What do you are you? Do you guys have a cocktail? Are you drinking? I'm not. Are you? We're like out of sync. You guys were drinking a couple episodes ago, and I wasn't. And now I'm drinking, and you're not. <coughs> I should probably get a cocktail then. Sounds like Corbett has a cold. No, I just I just did uh, insanity the workout like about a half hour ago, and <laughs> I'm having a little bit of difficulty breathing now. But he's got his core is totally engaged. But my core is so tight. <laughs> Do you want to go stop and make a, co- a pod, uh, cocktail real quick? Actually, there happens good? to be a bottle of Fernet right here next to me that I'm going to be taking with me on the trip. So you're just going to open it and sip out of it. <laughs> is that really? <laughs> I can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this in this episode where we're gonna this <laughs> I can I can hear you screwing on the bottle cap so clearly, Corbett. You're welcome. Um so this is the, the we, we just listened to a handful of excellent uh excellent uh amazing people talking about the things their first product story, you know, and the things they wish they would have known. My mind again is sort of like sort of spinning from a handful of things that I wanna like jump into. 
uh, to talk about these things. Um, but first of all, we should say in this episode, we're kind of going to focus our thoughts around. Uh, eventually, we're going to focus our thoughts around the pricing question. I feel like this is a big roadblock for people making their own product. Like they're afraid to put something out there because they don't know how much to even charge for it. I feel like Jenny Blake really gets to the heart of this well when she talks about like she had never asked anyone for money before in the past. You know what I mean? Yep. So uh, it, it's just a new thing to experience to just put some put a sale page out there with a thing for sale and and you it, it I don't know Corbett. Do did, you remember the first time that you like did that? Yeah. Did well and didn't Jason say the same thing? Yeah, he was totally. like, "Wow, somebody paid me five dollars, and if they don't cancel, it'll be ten dollars within a year." Yeah, absolutely, or a month or whatever. I like how he said it that way. Not like if they like it, it's like if they don't cancel. <laughs> if they don't, I'm get, yeah, I'm if they don't realize money. this is a complete <laughs> yeah. piece of junk, I'm gonna get five more dollars out of them. <laughs> yeah, um, I remember. I remember very clearly the first affiliate sales that I made, and then the first product sales that I made, and in both cases, it was pretty mind blowing. Um, just the idea that people actually get out their credit card and pay for things online and that I might be able to figure out a way to get them to pay me for certain things that they want. It was, um, that to me, that's like, that's the business virginity story to me, right? It's like, where were you in the back of a car, I guess, when, uh, somebody paid me for the the first thing that I sold. (laughs) (laughs) I like how you just slid that in there. (laughs) Where were you the first time someone paid you? I was in the back seat of a car. I was cold, but I got warm. (laughs) Oh God, you're disgusting. Yep. Didn't even have to didn't even have to borrow one of my dad's condoms to make my first sale. (laughs) Oh dear God. I am so leaving this in. You are busted, signore. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm still reeling from that blow. It might be the tequila and tonic I've been into since we were listening to the, those, those whole things. But that's hilarious. Okay, so I liked, I really, you know, I'm a huge fan of Chris Johnson. We'll start there. I, he's, he's the guy who, who led us off at the beginning, um, runs Simple Film, and he just th- he thinks, I love the way he thinks. He, I was just emailing with him before this show, and uh, every once in a while he'll like, uh, he might like send me a copy of something that he's sent someone, like a, 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 his response to a customer or something <laughs> right. like that. And they're, they're just so hilarious. And I, I was like, you're such a prick. And he's like, it, it's just the way my aspie bra- brain thinks sometimes. <laughs> and you could hear it almost in that interview. He's like, he, he almost has these moments of borderline Asperger's syndrome where, where the way he's thinking about it and the way that, that he could put something is so, is so cutthroat and unemotional that if you can imagine being on the other side of that, hearing feedback from him just being crushed, you know? But he's talking about the part that I like was it's never going to be perfect. Like, he's, he's like, look how much, like, we made a half a million dollars selling this thing. I still think it's rubbish. It's, and it's, and it, if I would have waited it for it to feel like it's not rubbish, it wouldn't have been, it still wouldn't have been out. You know, if we would have waited perfect, to perfect the shopping cart and all this other stuff, it, it, it wouldn't be out even to this day. So you, sometimes you just have to ship it and, and let her, let it Yeah. Go. And that's, and that's no small feat. I mean, the, um, the product that he's talking about, I believe sells for $47. So that's over yeah. 10,000 copies in a year for something that is kind of an afterthought. So that's, that's pretty impressive. I don't, I have no insight into how he decided to price that thing, but obviously 
Chris has a lot of experience pricing other services or services yeah. as packages. Well, and he wasn't he gearing it towards people that couldn't afford to pay him to do the full thing. So he wanted to get like the low end people. Yeah, absolutely. It was like, you know, a, a simple film video costs somewhere around $10,000 or more, you know, uh, and, and, he just wanted to put something out there that would be valuable for people. Maybe we should do this right now. What, I mean, people are, are getting hung up on the pricing conversation. What should I price my thing at? And, and I kind of see two things in that. Number one is the I'm uncomfortable with asking for money thing, right? And the only thing I can say to that is, is that Jenny Blake said it best. You know, she had problems with that. And now, and then shortly, it took her two and a half years to make her first thing. And then it didn't take her near a quarter of that to make her next thing, you know? And, and, and she was so, cause once you break that seal and realize nobody feels screwed after they pay you money to get something and they're almost always super excited and happy about it. Now, again, I'm talking to the people who are making something good and interesting. I'm not talking to the people who are maximizing the sleazy sales tactics to try to take advantage of people uh, by selling them, you know, snake oil and, and, you know, empty dreams or something like that. The chances are you're listening to this show. You wouldn't be able to tolerate us if you were going to be one of those persons who who would like be just taking advantage of people. Wouldn't you guys say? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Everybody that we've listened to in terms of interviews, all, if you go look at their products, they're all incredible. I mean, a lot of them are software. A lot of them are, um, you know, information and things that are just really genuinely useful. Yeah, and I just, I kind of want to just say, like, people, I, I've always been the kind that's been afraid of being the douchebags, you know. I, I hate the idea. I've always been artsy-fartsy type. I'm an artistic personality. That's, like, sort of a thing that I've made. I could see people who are uncomfortable yep. with money. Even people at the helm of, like, big business. Like, uh, I had a meeting today, who knows, with a guy who knows uh, the CEO of, of Visco Film, right? Yep. Uh, the, or the Visual Supply Co. And he's like, that guy is a close friend of mine, and he is still so uncomfortable with the idea of money. He of feels, charging people for of things. charging people for money. And they do charge money, and they make a lot of money doing it, and they're making an amazing product, and I'm happy to, to pay that, or at least to, to, to pay most of it and then get the other ones sort of on the black market of the internet. Um, but but like still, like this idea is pervasive even in people who are doing big companies, even in people who are really successful. Um, so first of all, like, and we have, we have some things coming out soon uh, in, in February about thinking through the money questions, uh, you know, how to get comfortable with the money, not to live in that mindset of like fear or uh, I don't know. Do you know what I mean by that mindset of, of fear about money? Yeah. I mean, Caleb might have a better answer since he dealt with personal finance for a long time, but I think most of us actually have that fear of charging people for things. You see it all the time when a friend or a spouse or sibling or whatever is getting started with some sort of business idea and they way underprice themselves. They undercharge for what they do. Um, They try to give their things away, especially if they're just doing it for other friends and family. Um, it's just a hang-up that most of us have, and if you don't have that hang-up, you're probably kind of lucky, actually, because yeah. you're probably going to get more of the value that you're you know, creating in the world, whereas uh, most of us have to figure out a way to get over that hurdle, and if we keep undercharging and underpricing, then we may never get over that hurdle because we never earn enough to kind of experience what it's like to charge a fair price and to be paid for what you're worth. Yeah, and that's a yeah. whole mindset change you just have to go through. And if I can use my wife as, a, as an example, she's been doing photography for a little over two years, 
And, you know, over two years ago, we would just have her take pictures of anyone, friends, family, whatever. Mm. Yeah. She would not charge those people. She like felt awful if they gave her like a $5 gift card for like Starbucks. If she spent hours and hours taking photos, editing them, delivering them just because she wasn't comfortable with money. Now, two years later, she's at the other end of the spectrum where she respects what she charges she tells people her either her hourly rate or her packages. If they are not willing to pair that, great. You know, brush your hands, go find someone else that's in your price range, you know. So it just takes time to get through that. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, your artistic ability, your comfort level, and yeah. just experience and time. And I, I think the biggest thing is the conviction about how valuable the thing is that you're making. And it's so hard to when you're in isolation somewhere, like uh, Anne was talking about in the last episode, when she was talking about, I had no idea that this, the stuff that I do every day was so valuable to people. Like it was just the regular old whatever. It's just how I used my calendar with my wife or whatever, right? And it turned out to be when I put that into a PDF and sold it, people were like so excited about the thing, right? I loved that story from Anne because I resonate with that so much. And I didn't start hearing that uh, or didn't st- I didn't understand that until um, I started doing the Derek Halpern email trick. And you know what I'll do? Because Derek talks about that in his episode, which will or in his in his interview, which will be on the next episode. So I'm just gonna have to leave that as a teaser. Nice right tease. There. Yeah, it's a good little tease right there. It's a little like I'm like biting my lip at you and kind of looking inviting. You know what I mean? I'm I'm don't do that, like, please. Like Corbett, please. Like the no way more you- visual. Thank you. <laughs> Like Corbett, like the way your dad did. Exactly. When he, when I first met him. What? Um, <laughs> what? What? <laughs> what? Uh, okay, let me let, let's uh, go through a couple of these real quick. So Paul Jarvis is I, I really really liked about his was the, the meat matters thing. Listen, all, where your button is on your page, all that conversion stuff. Which by the way, we're going to get into in the next episode in that Derek Halpern episode. Um, the, where your button is and all this stuff that doesn't matter. There's there's other things. The thing that matters most is what is your book about? Is it interesting? Is it good? What is your product? What's the problem that you're solving? Is it actually effective at that thing? Is that a painful uh, thing to go through? And I think it was uh, Chris Johnson who said, um, what did he say? Uh, You're going to have to give us more. You didn't get it from that? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) But he just said, you know, it, to his point on, on it's never going to be perfect, just make it, release it, and then see if the market wants it. You know, and, I, yeah. and we would argue, uh, you know, built into our sort of fizzle path sort of thing is we want you to know that the market's going to support it before you even spend the time and effort to make the thing. Well, or at least have have some idea of it. I mean, you can never really know until you release it. Um, sure, absolutely. So let me ask you this, though. When, when Paul says that it, what color your button is or if it's on the left or the right or whatever that doesn't really matter do you think pricing falls into that category or does well, pricing fall into the meat category it's a good question uh, like so for instance one on the on the show notes page on the page for this uh podcast you're going to see a handful of things that that I've collected great articles about pricing and one of the, the, the big ones it might be the only one that I include is this one by Nathan Barry that he wrote for a smart bear and when, you know, the, he starts out the article with how you price a product can have a radical impact on the revenue you make from it, yep. uh, which is, you know, 
again, I'm that artistic sensibility type. Like, I don't like to think about money. What I like to think about is making people happy, making something really great that people go like, oh my God, this is amazing. You know, I like, I care about that experience and I care about being able to do that in a reproducible way so that I can make something that gives that experience to someone over the long haul. Now, I also have requirements and needs in my life to keep the lights on, to keep my, my cupboards stocked with gluten free crackers yep. for my kid who's still trying to recover from a parasite we picked up in Mexico. Thanks very much, Corbett. Actually, I think we've got the, the parasite all sorted out. Okay. We're sort of, we're, we're not moving off the gluten free diet yet, but, uh, but pretty soon. Good. Um, yeah. Poor kid. Poor guy. You should just see his face when you eat ice cream. The thing is, the thing that hurts so much is, is eating ice he, cream in front of him every day. Is, yeah, is when I'm just sitting there eating a huge bowl of ice cream, and he's just looking at me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what <laughs> was in there? <laughs> God, you're good at that, Corbett. But he doesn't even like. He like wants it so bad, but but it. But he's never like, oh, can I have some? He's always like, is that gluten free? And I'm like, no, buddy, I'm sorry. He's like, that's okay. Is it good? <laughs> And he just, just wants me. to know. He just wants to know that it's good, and that it's just so adorable. But you know, we have these requirements. I got to keep the. I got to keep the the cupboards full of uh, full of gluten free crackers and things. So you got to make the money on the thing. Well, and, then, and, and, and the the fear is, I mean, just from a like a, a an MBA put on your economist hat, whatever perspective is, there's this concept of elasticity in pricing, which yeah. means there are certain points along the pricing curve where you can increase the price without affecting demand. So that means yeah. you might be able to charge double for your thing and still sell as many copies. In fact, in some cases, you might sell more copies because there's this whole perception of value, which is a whole other topic. But yeah. the fear as an entrepreneur is that you're underpricing your thing because you're not going to, you're missing out on some revenue that people would gladly pay because they believe that the value in your thing is there. Yeah. Is there really any way to know without testing? I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, I guess <laughs> yeah. that you know, this is a thing where again you can look at comparables and what other people are charging and I think you're thinking of comparables. Comparables and uh other <laughs> things matter. that uh you've sold yourself maybe or that other people have sold. But yeah, without testing, you're probably not going to not going to know and testing is a really complicated thing when it comes to pricing. Yeah, I, I, I'm just so afraid of testing, you know, a 40, like the same product for 49 or for 29. Like the idea of like someone landing and seeing 29 versus 49. But people do it all the time. Yeah. You know, they really do. And so in some ways, you just screw it. Just get over it. Someone, if someone complains, give them the $29. Well, and there, I mean, yeah, there are tricks. There are tricks to that. You can obviously change the packages and things. But once you change what's included, then you don't know. If people, you know, why people are reacting to that particular thing that you're selling, if it's yeah. the pricing or if it's the change in the structure of it. So let me tell you my dumb guy uh, thoughts on this, Please. and then you guys tell me the smart guy stuff, okay? Um, so I always think in terms of the kind of person that I want to attract and the kind of feel that I want to give them. That's what I think of. And, and so in the same way that it's like, you know, you know how pricing works. We all know this intuitively. Right, you know the difference between a Mercedes and a Toyota. You sense that, uh, and and half of what you sense is just the price tag, right? So the price tag creates a little bit of an exclusivity. You have the choice of selling something for two thousand dollars to ten people, or for twenty dollars to a hundred people, right? So and and in some situations, what did you're Paul, not talking. What did Paul say? Either two thousand for ten ten dollars, or I'm not good at math. Some other number. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. For or you could do it for this for or you could sell it for ten dollars to, to get I'm not good at math amount of people in. Exactly. That was so great. Um, uh, but but the uh, you know the difference between selling you know ten two thousand dollar things and and two thousand hundred things a yeah. hundred whatever I don't I don't understand math either. But you're talking about the same amount of revenue, different amount of work, and a di- and a very different amount of a very different product in the end, mm-hmm. you know? And then also the very different sort of experience for the customer. And so I always think about that experience because I know that, I, and I always love the idea of selling a big, like a, you know, a thousand dollar thing and then being high touch with them and really delighting them uh, over the course of the next six months, right? Yep. That's easy to do when you're someone who's in high demand or something. Because so, people put a, a premium on your time and they feel like, oh, wow, this is really valuable. I, can get, I got to like have a call with them or something, right? Yep. Whereas uh, making a, a, a lower price item feel really valuable might be more difficult, but there are ways to do it. And the way is that, like for us, I mean, Fizzle is, is $35 a month. It's ex- insanely affordable. And what we do to make it feel really high quality is a handful of things. We place a premium on, you know, the quality of our videos as well as the content in the in the videos themselves, mm-hmm. right? I think the most important thing, I mean I could be standing with my iPhone sort of holding it out and talking into it and I want the even if it was like that, I want it to still feel really valuable, you know, because the content itself feels good. But when you add that production quality, it just bring, brings up the trust. It, it brings up the level of 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 the feel of this thing. It's it's like the leather in a in a you know Mercedes or the wood paneling in a Mercedes, it's just it's just a nice touch, you know. And then the same, and then the, the other thing we do is a lot of these little high touch moments where, like, as soon as you sign up, you see this amazing GIF of us, you know. You see these little delightful moments, and I like to bake in delight as much as possible um, because it just creates that experience. Now, again, what does that have to do with pricing? Well, to me, it has everything to do with pricing. I'm trying to affect the experience that someone has with my thing. Right. Right. And then the, the other thing I heard on pricing that I really that stuck with me and I can't remember where I heard this is like, you know, and I think it was just meant as some sort of silly platitude, but it's a good place to start. Whatever your thing is worth, charge day 10 times less than that at first, you know, so that when someone buys your thing, they get 10 times the value. Right. Or you can think in terms of, uh, you know, smart guys look at the market and say, what, what price will the market bear? And then let's make the product that fits that price point. You know, we kind of balance between those two things. But I love the ability to sell Fizzle at $35, knowing full well what it's worth. Knowing it's so, it's worth, I really do honestly feel it's worth so much more than that. And I, that, that experience, as opposed to being like ashamed of what I'm selling, that, that affects me as the maker, as the whatever quote unquote artist doing things. It affects me a lot. And I'm very sensitive to that kind of stuff. Okay. So that's my dumb answer. Uh, dumb guy answer stuff. What, what would you guys uh, correct in that to make it a smart guy answer? Well, I think if you're afraid to charge money for something, then just do a zero plus model. So say you can get this for free or you can pay me for it. Like that's a that's a really great way to start, especially. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we have an article. We have an article about that. We should put in the show notes. Yeah, it's. I will. Yeah, it'll be in there. It's on the Sparkline. It's called Generosity Pays. I'll put a note to that. Mm-hmm. So for people who aren't familiar, like how does that work, Caleb? Basically, you have to use whatever payment processor you use to either have it be a free amount or it could start at, say, $5 or something. 
but then they can type in whatever they want above that. So they could put 10, they could put 15, they could put 1,000, they could put whatever they want. But there's a minimum that they have to pay, which you could just make free or $1 if you're that afraid of charging money for something. Yep. And this case study on the Sparkline, uh, our, uh, our buddy Tom Morks wrote it, and he goes through all the numbers of you know, exactly how much he made doing this and what he learned and what he heard back from people. So, you know, if you're afraid to charge a full dollar amount or, you know, a 10% amount like Chase was just talking about, then why not try this first? Yeah. And then let basically let people tell you what they're willing to pay. You'd have some really interesting data after that. Yeah. And then maybe after, I don't know, a couple weeks, a month or something like that, whatever the average is, just set that as the price. Yeah. And some people will get your stuff for free, but you know at least it's out there and uh, and they're consuming it. And if they love it, then they might become a customer at some other point for something else that you do. That's the other thing that people lose sight of with pricing is that this is really a long term game. I mean, oh, I feel yeah, like I totally. I feel like I blinked and suddenly five years have gone by and I've been in the blogosphere, whatever you want to call it, earning a living. Blogiverse, but that's because you're getting super old. I am getting pretty old, but. <laughs> But back then, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't making decisions that were five-year decisions back then. I was making decisions that were right in front of my face, and I yeah. know that I would have made them differently if I knew that five years hence I would be doing the same thing to the same people in a lot of ways. Yeah, to me, the takeaway from the pricing, what I'd love for someone to take away is, dude, just launch your thing. Make it 20 bucks or 200 bucks. I don't care. Just make it low enough so someone's going to buy it, and then you can you can... Uh, you can make it better. And again, and again, I'm kind of chomping at the bit to get into some of the other interviews that are coming next week. Like Derek, again, he has this awesome tip on that. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop there. But um, this idea of this focus, this, in, this insane sort of circus that's be- grown around the launch, the concept of the launch and everything in our, in this launch culture, it's, it's, it's baloney. I don't like it. It's important that you take your launch seriously, right? Do the thing. And you hear so many people say, I wish I wouldn't have looked at numbers or taken the launch so seriously. Well, Instead, I wish I would have, you know, just realized I was making a product and making fans for life. Yeah, except that, like, the most profitable company in tech uh, does some pretty spectacular launches around their stuff. That's right? great. You're not the most profitable blogger in the world. You're not, you're, we're talking, I'm talking to you who's making, like, the first product ever. Yeah. And they haven't made the product yet. Because they're too afraid about sure. this, that, or the other, you know? Sure. And, and so it's like, put the thing out for 20 bucks, and then 2.0, take the launch a little more seriously, 3.0, even more seriously. You know, we do have this great opportunity to iterate with these kinds of things that we're making. And just, same thing with, the, you know, the iPhone, right? They get to iterate that year after year or season after season or wh- however often they're, they're releasing those things, right? Yep. And so they get to make a moment out of it and say, look, we've made it better in X, Y, and Z way. Well, you get to do the same thing. So launch something that's worth $1 and then in two months, make it worth $20. And then in four months from there, make it $100. Let me just mention one more thing about the pricing strategy. And yeah. this might be more than you know a beginner needs to think about. But when you see prices out there or products that are priced at two or three different prices, uh, there's a, a specific reason for that, and that is that 
when people come to buy your product, they all have different reference points in terms of what they think something is worth and what they're willing to pay and how they feel psychologically about paying certain amounts for certain things. So when you create a product with three different price tiers, and usually you have you know different things that are included in those price tiers, you let people opt in to what package makes them feel best. Some people want to buy the all-in everything package because that's just who they are. That's what they want. And this is the same with like vehicle pricing, for example. A lot of times with cars, there are three different models essentially within the same line. And you get to sort of self-select if you're the guy that just wants the bare minimum, no frills, or if you're the person that wants the middle of the road, or if you want the all-in, you know, whiz-bang kind of package. So we have a really great article about that um, by Nathan Berry, actually, at the Sparkline as well, and we'll link to that in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, first of all, I love the way you just said that, Corbett, because it's not about how to get the most money from from the least amount of eyeballs. It's about... The, the perspective being, look, people are coming to your website from a bunch of different perspectives. Make a few things that, that they can self-select and, and choose something that, that fits for them. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, that perspective and thinking that way, again, audience-oriented, being empathi- empathizing with them about where are they coming from, who are these people, what do they want. And you don't know that necessarily off the top of your head, but you might be able to do some work and just guess about it and then make up a couple tests to actually try out, you know, to see, or, and shoot, send some emails to people. Um, but also, uh, you know, baked into that is our story about going from two pricing tiers to one. I, I, you want to share that story? Well, for us, it was, uh, so we launched Fizzle and I, we had two price tiers. I believe it was $29 and $49. Mm-hmm. And um, in order to support those price tiers, we had to decide what features of Fizzle and what content would be available to the $29 price tier and what would be available to the $49 price tier. And it always had a bit of a, a labored, you know, awkward sort of feel to us. Like we were mm-hmm. um, just sort of pulling ideas out of thin air in terms of what should be included where. And at the end of the day, after we launched it, you know, we had some some good experience with it. We kind of saw what the results were. But we also felt like we were creating this kind of uh, double uh, standard in terms of the way that we approach things. We call ourselves honest online business. And yet here we were with a pricing structure that obviously was aimed to maximize revenue from our members. It also created this feeling of a um, two-class or two-tier membership structure where some people were deluxe members right. and some people were regular members. And um, inside, it just kind of caused a bit of a, a feeling of a rift between our members. Well, someone would recommend, oh, well, you should go watch this founder story that's only available to deluxe members. And they're like, well, I'm just regular. Oh, exactly, man. exactly. So um, for those reasons, and finally, just because of the the simplicity argument, which is it's so much easier to create one package and just everybody gets access to everything. We don't have to um, arbitrarily decide what goes where. It just made a whole lot of sense for us to do that. And in the end, we decided not to even test what um, you know how this would impact our pricing. We just picked a price that felt fair that was somewhere in between those two numbers. We grandfathered people in. At the lower price tier, we actually gave you know everyone the lower price tier, and then the new price tier was a little bit more. It's thirty five dollars a month. We have, uh, I believe, a full blog post about this as well, 
about why we changed the pricing, what went through our minds, how we implemented all that kind of stuff, and the results, like what it actually did to our revenue. That'll be linked to in the show notes as well. And where are the show notes? They will be at F-I-Z-Z-L-E-Show.co slash 36. See, I did that. That was good. I was wondering if you were going to stumble up on that or... Yeah, you pulled it well, off. I, uh, yeah, well, I'm trying to be. A, I'm trying to be a, a, a jingle a, a master, more responsible. Yeah. Jingle master. But, but yeah, I am the the master jingler. Uh, um, but that's a big to me. That I don't know. I'm the dumb guy, right? So don't look at me about statistics or maths or science. But that decision, I'm proud. I'm proud of us for making that decision. That. This doesn't feel like who we are. And even though a lot of the data suggests that a two to three tier pricing thing ends up being better, we're going to go against the data and choose what's best for our members and choose for what's best for the, not, not yeah. just our members, but the things we want to make. The thing we want to make is this and this two tier, three tier pricing structure doesn't actually play very well with this. And I can you tell know? you, like, that, that is becoming, that to me was a very important fork in the road for us. And we chose yeah. a path that, like you said, I think we're really proud of because now we make decisions based on what's best for our members, what's simplest for us, and what yeah. feels right instead of how are we going to maximize every last dollar out of everybody that comes into our inner circle. Yeah, absolutely. And we should send a shout out to, John Corcoran, uh, yeah, so it was John Corcoran, John Muldoon, those are the two guys, and Nick, I think, who we heard a lot from yeah. uh, leading up to that decision, yeah, right? Yeah, Big Fizzle members that, uh, yeah. yeah, they told us a lot about it and how they felt about it, and we listened. Yeah, we, we were glad to hear from that. And by the way, I mean, like, I was just having lunch today with Ryan Carson of Treehouse dot, or TeamTreehouse.com or whatever. This huge, massive, you know, they do what, <laughs> it's like Fizzle, but it's a million times bigger uh, but and and he just dreams of being able to do like a one pricing one tier pricing structure and all but like you know he's got way too many uh interests there and they they have way too much traffic way too many things to do some big decision well like and ultimately that. he has a board of directors and investors and all that kind of stuff and we get to make decisions you know just between the three of us yeah and, and not that the point is to be to have to be in a business where you get to be flippant and do whatever you want right because he has very smart reasons for not doing it right. as well right. um but but I, I i just i'm proud of us for making that decision because we could have easily not done it, it keeping you know keeping that flag of whatever the most recent data is just raised up high you know and just kind of like not even be able to thinking about it because it's just the common script that we all kind of go to go to you know apparently you do i do apparently apparently we do that's not just delay in the line that was just me just soaking it in <laughs> well i have been chase wardman reeves i have been corbett lee Barr, and i've been caleb logic and this has been an fizzle show and fizzle show period I, I i honestly having english friends has screwed up my use of a and an really that's it are you sure it wasn't that you were raised by wolves How's that feel? <laughs> oh, thanks. Oh, you just gave me the delay. You delay blocked me. So there you have it. Our thanks to Chris, Paul, Jason, and Jenny for your thoughts here. We're so happy to have your points of view on this topic here. And you can find out more about these folks at fizzleshow.co slash 36. 
F-I-Z-Z-L-E-Show.co slash 36. You'll see links to those people and links to four pricing resources you really shouldn't miss. And while you're there, enter your email in the sidebar and we'll keep you updated with these posts in a classy, uh, fizzle kind of way. If you liked this, please leave us an honest rating in iTunes. It doesn't cost you much and it means the world to us because it helps other hopeful entrepreneurs find this show. Simply search for the show in iTunes and click write a review. Listen, I just got back from the New Media Expo with Caleb in Las Vegas, and we met so many of you listeners, so thank you for coming up and saying hi and hanging out. I wrote a post about the experience and probably mentioned you, uh, telling three stories from Vegas. You can find that as well in the show notes. That's fizzleshow.co slash 36. And I got to say a special thanks to Gumroad for putting on the opening party with us. It was a blast. Gumroad.com for things to sell to people who aren't your mom. It's <laughs> my little attempt at creating a tagline for them. There you go. You're making your product. You're going to need a way to sell it. You're going to find out more about this in February, but you might as well give Gumroad a try now. The key to success, folks, is very simple, and it is this. Know what you want before the bartender asks you. Okay, do the homework, decide on the direction, and get started. I hope this episode, hearing these stories, helps you see that none of us start out good at this thing. Thanks. And talk to you next Fizzle Friday with the third installment in this series.